Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you guys again today. Uh, to everybody that's tuning in online, I uh, can't say that it's great to see you, but it, I'm glad that you've decided to tune in and, and join us today, too. Um, as Jeff mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, there is a, I put a little sensitive warning uh, topic out there for you. If you've read ahead in chapter one of Romans, uh, you know a little bit of what we're going to be talking about. The funny part is I, I mentioned last week, I was like, uh, we're going to hang off and, and, and not address this until kids ministry, until kids ministry started again. Uh, and we decided not to because this is a subject matter that has brought up so many questions even within our church and our youth group uh, and all around the place. If you're wondering kind of what we're talking about, Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 uh, deals with homosexuality. And what I want to talk about today is really the, the tension between truth and grace as it relates to sin as a, as a totality in Scripture and then specifically in regards to uh, homosexuality here. But as I mentioned, this is a thing that I said I was going to be talking about in weeks ahead, and uh, decided to go ahead and, and press forward a little bit because there is a lot of requests about it, and I think it's something that we need to talk about. I think one of the main reasons why this is so central and why this is a question that so many of us are asking today is because it's so deeply personal for so many of us. I mean, we, we look around, and, and we, have, we have friends that we know and love. Uh, with, it's a nephew, it's a niece, it's an uncle, it's an aunt, uh, it's a neighbor, it's a coworker that you deeply love and you deeply care about that has fully embraced a gay lifestyle. And then as a Christian, you may look at certain parts of Scripture and say, okay, this seems to contradict that, and, but they're really, really good people, and, and I love them so much, and they're so kind. They're even nicer than many Christians that I know. And Like, how do I deal with this tension between the truth of what I read and God's Word right here and the grace that I want to give a people that have been overwhelmingly ostracized and abandoned by everybody in the world around you? Uh, and so this is a question that's been coming up all over the place, and it's coming from a number of different angles. It's a lot of parents that are wondering. They're, they're, they're looking at this question. They're saying, okay, there's a tension at home right now. And in my generation, I was raised up in a culture that was very black and white as, in, regards to this, uh, in regards to this topic. It was very black and white. And my kids are growing up in a completely different world where it's black and white on the other end of uh, embracing and total acceptance and calling it holy and all these other kinds of things. And what's taking place a lot of times in the home is that there is a brokenness between the parent relationship and the kids coming up. There's a war of generations taking place. And because we can't get on the same page here, uh, there's a breaking apart. And a lot of times what's taking place is that younger people, Gen Z especially, are looking at this, are looking at this contradiction, contradiction saying, hey, I can't have anything to do with that faith. And they're walking away at, at crazy, crazy numbers today because there's a massive tension that takes place between the truth of God's word and how we live it out with grace, how you love people that you actually genuinely love. That's what's at stake in this thing. We're talking with young people in the student ministry left and right, and they're saying, hey, I've got my friends. I've got my friends in theater and band. I got friends in, like, in, in school and stuff. Like This is their lifestyle. I love them. And you're telling me I can't, can't love Like No, not what you're saying at all, but like, how do I deal with the truth of God's word over here? How do I love someone when I don't agree with or, or affirm the totality of their lifestyle? Like, Is that even possible? And so like, this is a deeply, deeply personal matter for so many of us that needs to be resolved because this is also a matter that is making many people leave the faith and many other people rise up in an attitude of self-righteousness and unnecessarily push people away from the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that should never, ever take place. Uh, I've told you before, I'll, I'll never forget, it was my third week on the job here at DBC about five years ago when uh, the Supreme Court made their decision to legalize gay marriage. 
Uh, I'll just tell you, as a young rookie pastor, being three weeks into the job, it's not what I was wanting to preach about at that particular point in time. But I won't forget, um, it was the, where I was that day. I don't know if you guys remember this, but Cat uh, and I had gone out for a date night. It was a Saturday, and uh, we had gone out to Deep Ellum to go. Um, it was actually a Friday, but we went out to Cane Rosa, the greatest restaurant in Dallas, by the way, greatest pizza in the world. So Cane Rosa and Deep Ellum, and we come out, and uh, when we come out from dinner, the streets are just flooded. Uh, the parades have started flowing. People are celebrating the gay flags flying and everything. And, and we didn't know exactly what we walked into, but people are just celebrating happy and all this stuff. We're like, what's going on? Of course, we Google it on the phones and everything. And of course, we figure out what's taking place. Cathedral of Hope is a church in town. They started doing impromptu weddings that night, celebrating just massive celebrations and stuff. I get back home online and there's evangelical faith leaders that are just calling upon Christians to, to, to come back and to fully embrace and to fully affirm the gay and lesbian life style and actually call it holy according to scripture. Time Magazine came out with a very, very popular article at the exact same time, and they said this. They said, if the Christian cannot find the humility to evaluate the most cherished beliefs about sexuality, I want you to notice how it's talking about it right here. Now, like, notice the assumption that it is prideful for you and me uh, if, if you do not change your beliefs about sexuality. But here's what they say. They say from Time Magazine, if Christians cannot find the humility to reevaluate their most cherished beliefs about sexuality, then at the very least they need to err on the side of charity and quietly resign themselves to the fact that marriage equality is here to stay. They should also realize that the larger culture tends to paint them as homophobic uh, and that this picture, be it a caricature or not, is a big reason why many churches continue to bleed members. And so that's one part of the tension that you feel a whole lot. There's an overwhelming affirmation and acceptance of something that seems like the Bible does not call holy. Um, the other side of the tension is, hey, there's other people rising up and they're saying, hey, this is what the word of God says. And they're reacting with, in, in an attitude of fury and anger and self-righteousness and all kinds of different emotions and feelings going on behind that. I remember going back and like the courts, the, the steps of the courts were stormed with protesters that day by Christians, uh, evangelical faith leaders, again, rising up. They're preaching hellfire and brimstone. Of course, social media was going nuts that day. Uh, I remember one post by, in particular by uh, one faith leader wrote this. It says, the end is coming fast and swift. Come, Lord Jesus, come. This is a country of sin, and the Lord will deal with you all. And I want you to notice, like, the you language right there. The Lord's going to deal with you folks all. You fools. Y'all are the ones that are in sin. Like, that, that was the attitude that was playing out that day. And so church, like, I don't know where you are on this today, but it, I, like, I've, it feels like there's a war going on that nobody's winning today. I mean, you got to understand, like, the church is not winning in this regard right now. Gen Z has been leaving the church left and right. Your kids and your students and young adults are leaving the church left and right at astronomical rates like we've never seen before. Now, Barna's talking about how the, the fastest rising faith affiliation in the country today is the rise of the nuns. These are men and women that are embracing no faith affiliation, none. Like, I have no faith affiliation. It is the right, fastest rising um, faith affiliation in the country today. People saying, hey, I want nothing to do with faith. I want nothing to do with the church today. And, of course, we also understand, like, no one wins when you embrace sin. No one wins when you embrace sin. And so this morning, I just want to simply come before the Word of God, and I want to talk about this tension between truth and grace. And I want to remind us, church, that love, it does not exist in the denial of truth and truth does not exist in the denial of grace. 
This is a statement we've been saying repeatedly for about five years now together, but love does not exist in the denial of truth. In other words, it is not loving to deny someone the truth of what's really taking place, and it is not truthful if it is denying that person the opportunity to understand the fullness of God's love and his grace towards them in that moment, regardless of wherever they find themselves at that day. Love does not exist in the denial of truth, and truth does not exist in the denial of grace. And so I'm going to take this this text, and we're going to walk through that statement a little bit with a few truth statements, a few messages about God's grace. And again, my hope and my prayer for us as a church body is that uh, we would be a people that think biblically about everything that is taking place in the world today, and that we would be able to love radically, exactly as God has loved us in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so again, if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27 is where we're going to hang out today. If you didn't bring it, we'd be putting some of these passages up on the screen, so it'll be easy for you to follow along with. Uh, again, if you're not familiar with the context, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and the question that he's dealing with overwhelmingly at this, this point in the text is, what in the world is wrong with the world? Right? This is the question like everybody's asking, especially after that debate last week, right? What in the world is wrong with the world? Right? And we're like asking that, like we're going, this thing is broken. There is, this thing is broken. And so that's the question that he's dealing with uh, here at this passage. He's just shared the main point of the letter, which is very simply that you and I, we have absolutely nothing to be ashamed about when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and I'm talking with people after the last service, and they're saying, you know what? You know what? In a lot of ways, I do feel ashamed about the gospel of Jesus Christ because my kids and people that have left and people on outside these walls oftentimes think that, hey, if I'm a Christian, that means I'm hateful and I'm bigoted and I'm spiteful and I'm all these different kinds of things. And there's a very real thing in me that makes me ashamed to acknowledge that I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, hey, if you understand the gospel, there is nothing for you to be ashamed about. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, to the Greek, to the heterosexual, to the homosexual. That's not actually in the little Greek right there, but that's what he's saying. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so he gets into the chief problem which plagues all of humanity in the rest of chapter 1. That's what he's dealing with beginning in verse 18. Uh, And and, and so... uh, he begins kind of essentially with the bad news of the gospel to which Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection is going to be the good news of the gospel coming a little bit later on in the chapters there ahead. So that's the context of chapter one. And I want us to come back and I want us to be fluent in this language again, which we've hit on for the past couple of weeks, because if we are not fluent about the chief problem that plagues all of humanity, you and I will be those believers that rise up on a pedestal of self-righteousness, flaming condemnation at other people. There will be a disparity between us and them, and there will never be a communication of grace, which means there will never be a reception towards the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And so we have to understand and own and fully embrace the common problem that is unique to all mankind which plagues you and me as well. And so he begins there in verse 21, and he says this, although they knew God, speaking to the chief problem of all humanity, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or even give thanks to him. Instead, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and all kinds of creeping things. And so again, I just want you to notice the movement that's taking place in this text. Back in verse 18, it begins with the suppression of truth, right? Just picture there's a suppression of truth that takes place in the heart of every man, woman, and child in this world. Uh, In other words, there is a God in heaven who has revealed himself to us. He has shown himself to us in the beauty of his creation on a very general level. He has made himself 
himself known to us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He has made himself known to us in the living, breathing word of God, which he's given to us. In other words, he's made himself known. Humanity by nature suppresses the truth and pushes it out of the way. We elevate the God of self here. And in doing so, we do not honor God as God. That is the chief problem which plagues all of humanity. It's the thing that we saw take place all the way back in the garden. When Adam and Eve are back in the garden, they're experiencing perfect fellowship with God the Father. God the Father has provided for them everything they could possibly need for, for life and happiness and everything else. And he says, I want you to have full freedom in the garden except for this one tree over here. And essentially, Adam and Eve, they say, fine, thank you, we love you, that's great. Time goes on, they get a little bored with it. They come to this one tree, they fall into temptation. The God of self rises up over here, and they begin to think to themselves, you know what? I want to be like God too. It's time for my time to shine. And so they give in to the little g God of pride and of knowledge and wanting to be, uh, wanting to replace God. And then that's when everything comes in and falls into place. They do not honor him as God in the end. And what this word of God says is this is exactly what has taken place all throughout humanity from the very beginning of time. Whatever I want to do, whatever I want to believe, I get to define my own reality. Why? Because I'm functionally sitting upon the throne of my life. It's why Time Magazine can come in and they can say, hey, Christian, you need to rethink some of your most cherished beliefs about sexuality. Why? Because culture's changing. Not because God's changed his word, but because culture is changing. And culture is actually more authoritative than God. You are more authoritative than God. Other people in your life, they are more authoritative than God. And church, what I'm telling you is like you're getting this everywhere, by the way. You're, you're, you're be, this is what is being, this is what we're feeding on all the time. You can't even watch a show today without being fed this kind of ideology and this kind of a, a worldview thinking that takes place. I'll never forget a few years back. There's a popular Hollywood therapist that wrote an article which gained a lot of traction in Christian circles. And uh, it was talking about sexual liberation. And um, anyway, I thought it was fascinating. But here's what the article said. Sexual liberation, meaning however you want, with whomever you want, whenever you want, uh, kind of no holds barred kind of a thing. Sexual liberation is the same thing as spiritual liberation. Sex is good for the body, the mind, and the soul. Your soul cannot be free if your body's in chains. If your body's in chains, then your soul can't be free. They are inter interconnected. So I agree that sexual freedom is the most important thing that we can pursue. Church, I'm not kidding you. Like, this is not a thing that was just out there in Hollywood or outside the walls of the church. Christian pa pastors, leaders began sharing this around and saying, amen, amen, amen. We need to fully affir affirm, fully accept, embrace this ideology. Christians left and right are sharing and saying, amen, amen, amen. Why? Because we suppressed the truth about God, elevated the God of self. It sounds fantastic. It sounds like, hey, this is what I want to engage in anyway. But, but that, that's what's taking place, church, like authority in the world has been turned around. It's no longer God who's in charge. It's no longer God who receives praise, glory, and honor. It's no longer God whom we follow and gladly submit to, but we elevate the God of self and we say, okay, God, you had your time to shine. Now it's my time to shine. I think I'm okay on my own. This is the way that I want to go. And so again, church, what we have to see right here, the chief problem of man is not homosexuality. The chief problem of man is not oak lawn. It's not even pornography. It's not even adultery. It's not even premarital sex, greed, abortion, any other singular issue. 
The chief problem of man is that by nature and apart from God, we are suppressors of the truth, we elevate ourselves, and we do not honor him as God. Church, that is the truth. And so if you and I are going to be people of the truth and cling to be people of the truth, then that is the truth that we have got to uphold and we've got to believe first and foremost above and beyond every other thing. That this is a problem that's not just out there, that this is my problem too. That it's not just them out there, but like this is something that I embrace too. And so like everything else in this passage, we've got to understand, is a result in the fallout of this one common problem which plagues all of humanity. He continues in verse 24, and he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is what we've been calling in the past couple weeks um, really the, uh, the first wave of God's judgment and wrath. Uh, he talks about wrath of God being unleashed in verse 18. It's not eternal condemnation at this point in time. Uh, he's talking about the first wave of his wrath, which is very simply God giving us over to do the things that we ultimately want to do. And he looks at us and he says, fine, you want freedom? I'll give you freedom. You want to go your own way? I'll let you go your own way. But here's the thing. It's not going to work out as well as you thought it would work out. Because there's a thing called design. I've designed you in such a way to flourish, and it's not going to work out the way that it, you want it to work out. And so he continues here, and one of the many different ways that our freedom plays out is here in verse 26 and here in verse 27. And so he says, for this reason, a second time, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Church, is there any question about what he's talking about there? Is there any question about where the Bible stands on this matter right here? For a lot of people, you got to understand that there is a massive question today. One of the problems here is that in these two verses, the word homosexual isn't actually used in this section. And so some people come and they'll say, well, he didn't actually use the word homosexual. So the dishonorable passions that he's talking about here, it's kind of like anger, rage, it shouldn't be me. Problem with that is it's like the whole context here is sexual, right? You're doing hermeneutical gymnastics to say, hey, this isn't talking about that. It's talking about that. One of the other objections that comes in is that, well, okay, well, Paul didn't know about consensual, same-sex, loving relationships that we experience today. Like we've evolved to this point of doing relationships really, really well. Paul didn't know that. Paul's using, he's not using that word over here, so he's probably talking about dishonorable passions, meaning things like uh, sexual assault or prostitution or pedophilia or something like that. And so that's an argument that's gonna be made. Like, yeah, 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 you shouldn't engage in those extreme forms over here. Uh, that's not what Paul's talking about here. There's two main obje objections to that objection. First problem with that is, first of all, anyone living in Rome or Greece in the first century is very, very familiar with consensual same-sex relationships, okay? This isn't a new thing that we've just stumbled into today. This is a thing that's been around since the beginning of mankind. People living in Greece and Rome, we have archaeology today that's painting pictures and, and it's got very, that, that, that depicts consensual same-sex relationships that are harmonious, that are peaceful, that are loving, caring, and that whole kind of thing. This isn't a new concept to the Apostle Paul. Plutarch, who was one of the leading writers in the first century, he wrote about this tension and he talked about, uh, he wrote about the distinction in the first century between homosexual acts for pleasure, uh, sex for pleasure, which he describes uh, is unworthy. He's not a believer or anything. He's just writing about this stuff. He considers that unworthy, immoral, homosexual practice rooted in a committed relationship. He writes about this and he calls this honorable. 
He calls this honorable. And so uh, Plato does the exact same thing. He writes about this at the same point. Point is, like Paul knew the difference between a consensual and non-consensual relationship. However, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he continues to come and to call the entire thing unnatural is the word that he uses right here. And so on top of that, the entire context, I want to point out, like the entire context of this thing, it is consensual. This isn't an abusive relationship that he's talking about here in this text. I want you to look at this again. He says, two men burning with passion toward one another. Two grown men. We're not talking about a man and a child, a man and a boy. Two grown men. It's not pedophilia here. In a mutual relationship with one another, they're burning in passion one towards the other. There is consensual mutuality that's taking place in in the description of what's happening here in verse 26 and 27. They're exchanging the natural function of the woman. Like point of the matter, church, is like he is talking about consensual same-sex relationships here in this passage. On top of that, he's going he's to clarify it even more in his letter to Timothy and to his letter to the church in Corinth. He's going to specifically use the word homosexual there in those passages, um, which he doesn't use here in Romans chapter 1. But he says in, to, to Timothy, he says this, he says, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their mothers and fathers, Others from murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, uh, arsenikoitos is the Greek word that he uses right there, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. In other words, he's going off on this long list of sins, one of which happens to be homosexuality, and he names it right here in this text. It's the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, pornoi is the word there, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality is the way the English translators have taken that. What's interesting in the Greek in that, in that passage right there, he uses two different words here to describe what's taking place. And so the Greek reads this, malakoi, uh, malakoi hute arsenikoitai. Okay, that doesn't mean anything to you, but malakoi is a word which simply means the effeminate or the more passive partner. Hute means nor, so not the effeminate, more passive partner, nor the aggressor, arsenikoitas, the homosexual or the pederast in some times and places too. But he's describing this thing, and English translators come along and they say, uh, these are people who practice homosexuality. It's not just the passive one, it's the aggressive, it's the aggressor over here too. Point is, again, church, like this is all over the place. It's not just in the epistles. It's not just here in Romans. From the very beginning of Scripture, you're seeing this description take place. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah is a big example that we see play out. Uh, We read about this in Genesis 19. This is one of the things that was taking place at that point in time, which brought about the judgment of God. Now, I want to be very, very clear. Isaiah, as well as Ezekiel 16, are going to be very clear. This is not the only thing that was taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah at the time. It's not the only thing that brought about the judgment of God. However, it was one of the things that brought about the judgment of God. Jude is going to actually talk about this. In Jude chapter 1, verse 7, right before Revelation, Jude's going to come in there, and speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, he's going to say that they indulged in gross immorality, and they went after strange flesh. In other words, from the very beginning, his commentary into the new covenant, by the way, is that, yeah, that was gross immorality that, was, that they were going after strange flesh. One of the things that brought upon the judgment of God at that point in time. Same thing in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. They're going to come in and do the exact same commentary about homosexual practice, okay? And the reason, and of course, the objection that's going to play out there is, well, okay, Leviticus also says things like, hey, you guys shouldn't be eating shellfish, and uh, you shouldn't be wearing clothes that have mixed fibers and all kinds of weird old covenant laws that you and I don't fully embrace or walk in today, right? And you're going to hear that play out with 
uh, social commentaries uh, like Bill Maher, uh, Larry King, people like that. They're going to say, well, look at all the other ridiculous things that Leviticus taught. And they're right about that, right? We do not live under the old covenant. Uh, we live under the new covenant. Christ has eradicated those things, which is why they're not authoritative. The reason Leviticus still matters is because this sets up the context for which Jesus comes and he does his whole ministry. Jesus is going to come on the scene, and again, one of the big questions you're going to get a whole lot is, like, why didn't Jesus specifically condemn homosexuality? And of course, the answer is he does, he does speak to it. In Matthew chapter 5, like, that is already the context by which he's doing ministry. That was the sexual ethic that was normative at that point in time. And in that normative sexual ethic, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to come to the scene, and he's going to simply say, okay, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, you shouldn't even lust over someone who's not your spouse. In other words, when Jesus comes in, he doesn't make the sexual ethic more progressive. He doesn't loosen the bounds or anything like that. He comes and he's like, no, no, no. You guys thought it was already sexually repressive? <laughs> he's kind of laughing a little bit. He's like, he's like, you thought that was conservative? I'm telling you fools not to even lust over people who aren't your spouse. Like, no, no, no. It's great that you haven't committed adultery. But hey, guess what? That night session in front of your computer, man, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Like he's raising the sexual ethic right there, which already consisted of homosexuality at that point in time. Matthew chapter 19, he's going to speak about marriage. Okay, and in Matthew chapter 19, he's going to say, he's going to say this, haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning, he made them male and female. Church, we don't have to apologize about that. He made you male or female. You love people that don't, aren't there yet, but he made you male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Church, that's what Jesus taught. From the very beginning, it was male and it was female. The two of them coming together in the context of marriage. Sex is a beautiful, beautiful thing to be enjoyed in the context of this marital relationship right there. But church, from beginning to end, that is the ethic that has been taught from Genesis, Leviticus, to Jude, and Revelation. The Bible calls homosexual practice sinful before God. But once again, what I want to bring us back to is in that understanding, is that the thing that's going to bring the world to its end? No. What we read in Romans, and Paul's whole point in Romans is that it is one symptom of a much greater problem, namely that the world, self being included in this thing, suppresses the truth. We elevate ourselves. We go and we serve a million other little g gods that are not worthy of being God themselves. And in doing so, we do not honor God as being God. It's why he keeps going, and in chapter 2, he doesn't let believers at this point in time get off the hook and start getting all judgy with other people. Chapter two, he's going to come in and he's going to say, hey, you who judge everyone else, you who judge everybody else, you've got no excuse because in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, you practice the same things. And we read that and you're kind of going, okay, how in the world do I practice the same thing? I, I'm pretty sure I haven't practiced the same thing. But he clarifies that in verse 29 in chapter one, he goes back, he's like, he said, no, no, it's not just that in 26 and 27. He keeps going and he says, it's, it's, it's evil and it's covetousness and it's malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, they're slanderers, they're haters of God. They're disobedient to parents. I think that's hilarious. Like foolish, faithless, they're heartless and they're ruthless. And they not only do the same thing, but they give hearty approval and they celebrate the people who practice them in their presence. Like, in other words, church, like, it's not just their problem out there. Like, it's our problem too. 
You know that this is true. It's not just that sin out there. Like it's in the church too, and it comes into our world as well. I mean, you know some of the stats. Somewhere around nearly 80% of men, 55% of women have admitted to intentionally looking at pornography in the past three, three months. There's only about a 5% differential with people who profess to be a believer and only about an 8% differential with people who claim to practice the faith actively. That is a massive amount of people that are coming and admitting, hey, yeah, sexual immorality is a thing that I personally deal with regularly. 64% of young people ages 13 to 24 actively seek out pornography weekly or more often than that. By the way, this is coming from fightthenewdrug.org, also the book Trustify. 22% of men, 14% of women have confessed to cheating on their spouses while being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 89% of teenagers, 95% of young adults say that when they talk about pornography with their friends, they do so in a neutral and accepting or encouraging way. Church, point of the matter, it ain't just them. It's not just outside these walls. It's come in here too, and this is our problem as well. And here it is, it's not just sexual sin we're talking about. Like Paul is gonna get into all kinds of things like greed and envy and arrogance and ruthlessness and approving of people when they practice these same things. Chapter three, he's gonna say, there's none who are righteous, not even one of us. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Chapter seven, he's gonna get vulnerable with this. He's gonna say, like, this is my problem. Like I find this thing in me that I hate. Like I do the things that I don't wanna do and I struggle doing the things I know I should do. In other words, even the Apostle Paul, the great and mighty, greatest missionary the world's ever seen, like the ideal believer is sitting there going, hey, this is a problem. Like I don't always do what I want to do. There's a war waging inside of me of temptation. And sometimes I say yes to the elevation of self. I say yes to the suppression of God. I follow little g gods in, favor, in lieu of following the one true God. And I do not honor him as God. Like this, is the, like, this is in here, but here it is, church. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God didn't wait for us to figure it all out. God didn't wait for you to fix your own life and to stop being immoral. He didn't, he didn't wait for you to come and, and, and to stop having or to stop giving in to these temptations that we give into all the, all the time, church. Like while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. In other words, like while we were in sin, God fixed his love on you and me and he chose to give us grace. Church, that's what we did, church. Before we fixed things up, he went to us in the middle of our depravity, in the middle of our sinfulness, whatever it may be for you. However that plays out, God never stopped loving you and he condescended from heaven and he took on flesh and he did so because he looked at you and he looked at me with a profound amount of love and he said, you're not unlovable in the middle of your sin and I'm gonna prove that message to you by emptying myself of all of my rights, taking on flesh, living the sinless life you could not live, going to the cross, suffering, bleeding, and dying that you and I could be forgiven of our sins, redeemed and made whole, made whole again and live with him now and for all of eternity. Church, like that is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace is able to give favor even when you're undeserving. Church, that is the message of grace. It doesn't wait and look and say, hey, are you a community that is worthy of love? The answer is no. Because the answer is, hey, when I was unworthy of love, God gave me love instead. God gave me grace. God saw me in the middle of that place. So church, to the, <coughs> to the people who think, like you cannot love someone that you functionally disagree with. All due respect, you're just wrong. You're wrong about that. To the people who think you cannot love someone unless you fully embrace the fullness of your lifestyle, that is not the gospel, church. Like We do not have anything to worship about if that were true. 
The truth of the gospel is we were unlovable. We were lost and dead in our sins. And in the middle of that place, God still loved you and me. He did not wait for us to become lovable. He did not wait for us to come and to fix it all up to the people who think you've got to have full acceptance before you love somebody. It's nonsense. It is not the gospel. We worship because that statement is not true. Are you with me, church? Yes. Like that is the beauty of the gospel. And so you and I as believers in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ can radically love people that you don't align with the fullness of their life. And you can do so with humility knowing, hey, this is my issue too. This is my problem. We're not that different. We sin differently, but we have the same fundamental problem before a holy God, and we still have the same God who did the same thing for me as he's done for you. He's emptied himself of his rights, and he's given his life for your well-being, for his glory in the end. Church, if we're going to be a people of truth, you have to be willing to tell the whole truth. It can't just be the truth about sin and condemnation. Like that's not where the gospel ends. The gospel continues from sin and judgment, and it continues to the good news of the gospel. In the middle of that place, God loved you. It's so much so that he emptied him, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the fullness of the truth. If you and I are going to be people of truth, we have to be firmly committed to telling the entire truth. There's two specific applications I want to give us here that I want us to hold on to. But number one, we have to be people that lead with love. Okay, We have to be people that lead with love. Not that we are leading with truth, being truth and condemnation and judgment. We cannot lead with that. We need to be a people that lead with love. We have to be it with our kids, be it with a wandering son or daughter, be it with a coworker that you love. They're so kind and loving. You love them. It's the aunt and then the uncle. We have to be a people that lead with love. Church, don't ever forget that the mission of God is to woo and to win, not dominate and destroy. Are you with me on that? The mission of God is to woo and to win. It's not to dominate and destroy. And the reason I say that, there's a lot of domination and there's a lot of destruction in the world today. And it is not what God has called you and me to do. He has called us to woo, to love, to be patient, to be kind. And to win in the end through grace and truth working side by side always. I'll never forget years ago, um, I, had a, I had a buddy. I've, I've shared a lot of his story here in the past. And the uh, reason I share his story a whole lot in the past is that before he passed away, uh, he told me, he said, hey, you're going to have a pulpit one day and you need to share my testimony so that the church can be reconciled with the gay community again. But we had a long standing history, a long relationship. I met him when he was in his 50s back in the day. Um, I'll, I'll just say that to this point in time, he's, uh, he was uh, one of the leaders in the gay community in Oakland. We came to, he sort of had a coming to faith moment. We developed a strong friendship. <clears throat> I spent a lot of time with him in Oakland, getting to know his friends and understanding the gay community. And to this day, I praise God for that experience and for his friendship because uh, in doing so, I think he allowed me to love the gay community in a way that I'd never been able to do in the past. And so I honor him and respect him a lot. But there was one day we were walking through Oakland together. And I remember walking through the community and I was just asking him. He called it the neighborhood. He's like, oh, he's like, come to the neighborhood. We'll come get lunch. We'll hang out. I was like, Don, you can't. I was like, okay, I'm not allowed to say that, right? He's like, no, you can't say that. I can say that. And so I was like, we were having a conversation about the neighborhood. And I was like, why, why do you call it that? Why is there a neighborhood? And why is it so central to your identity and, uh, and everything else? And we were just having this conversation. And we're walking down the street. He goes, I want you to look around here. And I was, I'm looking around and he goes, you need to understand that about 95% of our community has dealt with an unbelievable amount of abuse and, um, and condemnation 
and being kicked out from families, from communities, from church groups, and from everything else. And this is his, I'm not, hopefully don't hold me to these stats, I don't know, that this is his story. He says, look around, 95%, we've all experienced that story. He's like, we cling to each other because we are all that we have. We are the only people that, that, that love each other, that, that will care for each other and everything else. And he goes, Aaron, don't think for a moment that a gay guy is really confused about what you think about their lifestyle. The question that they are asking is, will you love me anyway? And I remember sat there frozen in my steps. They will never, they're not asking, where do you stand about their lifestyle? The question that they're asking is, will you love me anyway? Church like that is the gospel. God loved us anyway. Is it not? That's the thing we sing about every single day. I was lost and dead in my sins. Jesus loved me anyway. I, I was lost in empty religiosity, self-righteous rebellion, right? I, I, I was lost in maybe it's pride or ego or greed or whatever the thing may be that, you're, that you may have been engaged in. And, and Jesus loved you anyway. That is the fullness of the gospel, Jesus Christ. I was lost and dead in my sins, and Jesus loved me anyway. A little while later, uh, we're walking down the street, and he introduces me to one of his friends who happens to be the director of an AIDS clinic that's there in Oakland. It's not a Christian organization. It's just an AIDS clinic that's there because AIDS has ravaged the gay community, especially over in the Oakland, um, that whole area. And so he introduces me, and he, we always had a joke. He'd always introduce me as, this is Aaron, my conservative, straight Christian friend. <laughs> and so it's like, this is Aaron, my conservative, straight Christian friend. And we kind of laughed about it. And, and this woman, and she, she looked at me, she's like, oh, you're a conservative, straight Christian friend. That's great. I've, I've heard of one of those before. And... Um, and we kind of laughed, and she goes, no, actually, there's one of those that's working at the clinic with us right now. And I was like, really? And uh, I was like, tell me, about how's that worked out? And she goes, you know, we had our suspicions for the longest time. We didn't know how it was going to work out. Uh, but over the time, he's proven himself, and there's none of us that are able to doubt the way that he's loved our community. We, he's been serving with us for over two years now, and none of us doubt his genuine love and affection for our community. What a beautiful testimony to be said. Come to find out, I meet that guy later on. Come to find out, it's somebody that I already knew. This is his life story. This guy goes to the darkest places of Dallas, and he loves people where they are. And I'm talking with him about it. I was like, bro, what, what, what led you to start serving at this clinic? He's like, bro, he's like man, there is no gospel presence in, in Oak Lawn. There is no reception. We have, like, this is a community that has been overlooked, and I love them because God loves them, and they're friends, and they're the kindest people you've ever met. They've been abused by everybody else in the world, so of course they're kind overwhelmingly. And as he comes in and he's like, I want to love them. I want to know them. I want to serve them wholeheartedly. And church, like, that's what we do. Church, we woo and we win. We don't come and dominate and destroy. And we do that with our kids. And we do that with our coworkers. And we do that with our nieces and with our nephews and people in our lives that we honestly love. We woo and we win. I was talking with a guy this past week from our church body who still continues with same-sex attraction. And he's chosen to live in abstinence today and in celibacy. And he's chosen to embrace that lifestyle and stuff as, as, because he's saying, hey, this is the way that I honor God. But his testimony this past week was very simply this. I never would have come into the truth had a community of believers not come around and love me for a long time first. Church, your ability to love someone well will determine how much time you have to woo them into the faith. 
You understand that? Like your ability to love someone well will determine how long you have to be in relationship with them, to enjoy their friendship, number one, and to potentially come around and to preach the word of God, not focusing on the symptoms of a sin problem, dealing with the realities of a sin problem in hopes that they're going to come into the full understanding of who God is and what he's done for us in life, death, and resurrection. Your ability to love them well will determine how long you have with them. We have to be a people that love, that lead with love. After that, we need to be a people that lead with vulnerability. Lead with vulnerability that lead with humility. In other words, church, we have got to be a people that are honest about our own need for grace and our own need for forgiveness. <clears throat> church, like where in the world is room for, where in the world is self-righteousness in the gospel? Like it's not, that, that is not a possibility for you and I who have an understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus. There is no possibility, there is no room at all for self-righteousness in this entire thing. Like, it's just not there. Like, how in the world can I get, a high, get on a high horse and live on a high horse and scream condemnation and guilt and shame to everybody else when I am the recipient of so much grace in my own life? Where in the world do I get off on this high horse of self-righteousness? This does not exist. We've got to be a people that lead with vulnerability and with humility day after day after day. One of these days that I'm sitting with my friend Don out in Oaklawn, we were celebrating his 25th sobriety birthday. He was in his late 50s at that point in time. Um, and he invited me to come and join all of his friends uh, and uh, to go do dinner with him. And so Kat and I went, and um, it was a really interesting experience. I'll just say it wasn't our typical place we'd go to for date night or anything. Uh, everybody was in drag that day, and uh, not us, but they were... Um, and so we go to this restaurant. I just, I love, we have, a, we have a really good friendship at this point in time. And um, when we go and I'm sitting there and I was excited to get to know his friends. I wanted to know them. Uh, I wanted to hear their stories because my time with Don had been so special. Uh, he would tell me later on, as soon as I came in, they could smell the conservative, straight Christian all over me. And uh, they loved Kat. Kat started being sassy with them about their makeup and stuff like that. It was kind of funny. Um, but they didn't really want to talk with me a whole lot. And I'm sitting down, and I'm t trying to engage. I'm trying to engage. And we're just getting nowhere. And I was like, man, this is a little tougher. What, what's, what's going on here? And uh, finally, after a long time of sitting there in silence, I'm getting frustrated and upset a little bit. And one of the guys just turns to me. He goes, fine. He goes, man, I, he, he's like, I'm just going to ask you the question that all of us are thinking. And he goes, what do you think of us? Why are you even here? And I was taken back a little bit at that time, but he's like, I, want to, I honestly want to know, why are you here? What do you think of us? He goes, it's a question that all of us are asking right now. And I go, you, you honestly want to know what I think of you? He's like, yeah, I want to know right here and now. I was like, I think that you and I are in the exact same boat before holy God. Sinners in need of grace, which he has given to us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and is waiting for you to be, to be received by you. I think that we are in the same place before a holy God, and it plays out differently in my life than yours. And yes, he calls it sin, and he wants to bring you into relationship with him, but I, you and I are in the same place before a holy God, sinners in need of God's grace, which he's offered to us in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he sat there in silence, and he goes, you honestly believe that, that we're in the same boat? I go, yeah, man, I do. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm giving my life to the ministry. Because God loved me in my religious self-righteousness, in my pride and my arrogance, in my lostness and my destruction. God never gave up on me, and he loved me anyway. And I want the world to know that that is accessible to them as well. Church, I just tell you that the walls broke down. 
We laughed, we ate, we enjoyed story, telling stories. We got together in the weeks ahead. We had fellowship. They came in the understanding of the gospel. Most of them rejected it and couldn't embrace it fully. A couple of them were almost there, almost moving and stuff. The whole thing was redemptive and healing and hopeful and loving, receiving from their end and this, that, and the other church. I'm telling you, we have got to be a people that are fluent in the gospel. It cannot just be the truth about sin and judgment and condemnation. Love does not exist in the denial of truth. Truth does not exist in the denial of grace. It continues on from sin and judgment and condemnation to the solution in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a God in heaven who still says, I love you in the middle of that place, and there's grace and there's healing for you in that place. We have got to be a people that are fluent in the entirety of the gospel. Otherwise, there will continue to be a divide, an entire people group that will never understand what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. It took my friend Don 25 years to come into an understanding of the fullness of the gospel. When I met him, I was at a party in seminary. I'm telling you, those seminary parties were pretty crazy. Um, uh, we were like studying the Greek and something. I'm just kidding. Um, but I met him at a party, and he had just come, he just had a, a sort of a, a come to faith moment uh, with another friend of mine who was at the seminary who invited him to this party, and we get to know each other a little bit, and he's intrigued by. Christianity, he's understanding things for the first time, and he comes to find out that I work at Northwest Bible Church, and, and he immediately tells me, he's like, we're not going to be friends. And I was like, why is that? And he goes, that was the last church that I stepped in 25 years ago. And he goes on and he shares his whole story with me. 25 years ago, he and his partner at that time walked into the church, and uh, it was a time that they lost over 100 some different people to the AIDS pandemic and uh, AIDS virus, and they were mourning and they were crushed. They were looking for hope. They came into church. They heard the message, they came into the parking lot, and somebody met him in the parking lot and said, you deserve to be shot and killed and sent straight to hell. And I looked at him, and I, I was horrified by the story that, I heard, that, I, that, I, that he told me that night. And I told him, I said, I am so sorry that that was your experience, and I want to let you know, as a minister at this church, that is not the heartbeat of our church. It is not what you would find today. And he's like, well, I got a hard time believing. We develop a friendship, start going to breakfast and eating together and enjoying friendship. And we start talking about things very, very seriously. He's very intrigued by the gospel. He believes it, but he's dealing with the tension between his own sin and embracing the whole thing. And so uh, one morning he calls me, Sunday morning, I'm driving, I'm about to head out the door to go to church. And he says, hey, I'm here, I'm in the parking lot. I'm ready to go to, into the church again. He's never been to church in 25 years since that one day. And I was like, man, I'll be there. I'll meet you in the parking lot. Give me, I'm about 15 minutes away. So he calls me back and he says, hey, forget it. I can't do it. I'm too terrified. I've never done this before. I can't do this. And I was like, hold on. He calls me back. He's like, all right, I'll wait. We go back and forth. He calls me like six times that morning. I can do it. No, I can't. I can do it. No, I can't. I meet him in the parking lot and we pray together and we, and, uh, we come inside. I, I meet with Neil Tomba, who's our senior pastor. At the, he still is. And um, Neil knows a little bit of his story at that time. Neil encourages him, just lets him know, hey, man, I'm so glad that you're here. We love him, and he prays for him and stuff. We go into the church service, and Neil, uh, as he gets up there to preach, he calls for the entire church body to get down on their knees, on their kneelers. Uh, they had kneelers and pews at that time, but he says, pull these things out. And he goes, church, every now and then, the church needs to come together and collectively ask for forgiveness for the sins of our past. By the way, cor corporate repentance, that's what we're talking about. That's a Another fun hot topic today. That's what this is. It's just not that you personally did it, but that corporately this has taken place. And that the sin that happened with Don in that parking lot was not an individual sin. It was a sin of the church. And that's how it was received. And so the entire day that we got down, we, we got down on our knees 
And we just prayed, and we, 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 he said that there's, there are times that the church rises up, and we have unintentionally just judged and condemned and created, dis, dif, uh, created distance between us and the gay community. And I'm on edge. I'm sitting next to Don. I don't know how it's being received that whole day. I'm going, oh, Lord, I hope this is, I hope this is being received and the spirit is being given. Man, I don't know. We come back, and we have lunch that afternoon, and he's just weeping. He's like, man, I've never, I've never felt so loved before. And he's, I didn't know that God could love me like that. It began a long friendship between he and Neil, the church. We got into the gay community. He brought in his friends, other people that needed that reconciliation, that healing, that redemptive touch. He ended up coming to a full faith and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. I told you that I had a friendship with him for three years. At the end of his life, he developed cancer that combined with the AIDS that he'd been living in for a number of years, and it ended up taking his life just before uh, he passed away uh, when he first got cancer. Kat decided to create a care calendar for him. This is what Christians do, right? Somebody gets sick and, and somebody needs help, and so we do a care calendar. We bring food and love, and, and I'm not kidding you. That thing was full in 15 minutes. The church had got to know him a little bit, and I remember going over there one day, and he's in his bed on hospice. He's all hooked up to all of his stuff, and, and the, I'm not kidding you. Like the whole, the whole uh, all the countertops, his fridge was full with, like, with, like, uh, with food and, and um, all kinds of stuff. I mean, cakes and pies, the whole deal, right? This is what Christians, this is what we do. We love people. I just bring stuff. And he's like, the living room, it was overflowing in the living room. And, he called, and we're bringing more and more food. And like his partner is there. And he's, he's just like, I don't understand. Like all these Christians coming into my home, letting, them know, letting us know that we love them. And he calls me one day and he simply says, Aaron, it's got to stop. He goes, it's got to stop. I've never, I don't know what to do with this. I've hated the church and I've hated Christians for so long. And I don't know what to do with this. You've got to make it stop. I've never felt so much love. I feel like I'm going to explode. Church, it took 25 years for that man to understand the fullness of the gospel. That the truth about his sin is not just judgment and condemnation. That there's a God in heaven who loved him anyway. He sent his son Jesus to come and to live the life he wasn't able to live and to die the death that we all deserve to die and do so that any and all who would come to him in genuine faith, turning from our sin, coming to him in genuine faith, may live with him now and for all eternity. My hope and my prayer for you and for our church body is that it would not take 25 years for the people that are in your life. That you would be a people that know how to love people well with truth and with grace, working side by side always, all for the praise and for the glory of his name. Father, we love you when we worship you, God. Lord, we come humbly, knowing that we're in the exact same boat, but we've simply said yes to you doesn't make us better, doesn't make us more worthy, more deserving, God. It just means we've received grace. God, would you forgive us for the ways that we've screened condemnation upon a people that need to understand grace? Would you eradicate every trace of self-righteousness that may be living inside of us today? God, would you replace it with a profound humility that's able to love people well with truth and grace? Father, would we be a different church? Would we be a different people? Would our gay friends, people that we love, relatives, co-workers, neighbors, 
would they know the fullness of the gospel, the God who loves anyway? And would they receive that truth, surrendering to you fully, Lord God? We pray that you would have your way. We pray that you would have your way, God. Come and be glorified again. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen.